Father, we thank you so much for what you accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ. That you have brought us to your throne. You have redeemed us through his blood. You have called us to, from darkness to light. You have regenerated our hearts so that we can sing these songs earnestly. Lord, you have changed us from the inside out. And so we repeat over and over of your grace and your kindness to us. We pray that you would move in us today. You would call us to greater holiness. You would call us, those who don't know you, to salvation. Lord, you move in us. We ask that this would all happen through this wonderful means of grace that you have given us, the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are so very blessed to be here to study the Word of God gathered together this morning. If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, the story and the theme of this chapter in the Bible is the sundry and multitude sins that it took to put Jesus on the cross. You could even say this chapter is a demonstration of human depravity. Leading the depraved efforts, you have the religious leaders of Israel, these snakes, these hypocrites, instigators, they're full of jealousy, they are full of murderous intent. Early in Jesus' ministry, we're told that these religious leaders, quote, looked for an opportunity to destroy him. Well, they found their opportunity with another depraved individual, Judas Iscariot. Judas, the vile, truly satanic betrayer. This man knew the Son of God. He was around the Son of God. He heard the wonderful words that Jesus spoke. He saw the wonderful things that Jesus did. He was the object of all the spillover blessings of being among Jesus' followers, yet willfully he allowed Satan control of his life. He too was full of jealousy and spite. And so he betrayed Jesus to these religious leaders. A few weeks ago we learned of Judas' remorse, a remorse that fell far short of genuine repentance. Even in his remorse... Even his regret was a sinful regret. Regret. We also see the crowd here, this wishy-washy group of people, finicky crowd, people of Israel. Yes, they were led astray by false leaders. Yes, they oftentimes were simply caught up in mob mentality. You see this even more today. But it was the crowd who, in the end, cried out, Crucify him, his blood be on us and on our children. Amidst all these sinners, we also have a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, had absolute authority for who would be executed that day, that day there in Jerusalem. And Pilate represents for us a whole different kind of sin than the rest of these people represent. His sin was what I've called respectable sin, a relatable sin, in fact, a sin that is so mild by our own estimation that some Christians have wrongly assumed that 
Pilate was innocent. Others have even venerated him, or in, in fact his wife. Though nothing here indicates either one of them had a relationship with God or faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Pilate was in between the proverbial rock and hard place. If he did not deal with an accused insurrectionist, word could get out that he was weak and allowed rebellion to foment in his area of responsibility. He certainly didn't want another revolt on his hands. More than that, this huge crowd of people were shouting out, led by Jewish leaders, demanding Jesus' death. The last thing he wanted is for word to get back up to Caesar once again. And his friend Pilate was incapable of dealing with the Jews. So on the one hand, to keep the peace, to keep his reputation, Pilate had to kill Jesus. On the other hand, Pilate liked Jesus. He was enamored with Jesus. He was amazed by him. He saw no guilt in this righteous man. This was becoming more and more clear. The people who hated Jesus were the wicked people, not Jesus. The people who wanted him dead were the crooked, envious leaders of Israel. So for Pilate, there was no real legal reason to kill him. On top of that, his wife, and subsequently Pilate himself, had a bad feeling about all this. Maybe he shouldn't kill this righteous man. His instinct, his gut feeling, he should have nothing to do with Jesus. So Pilate, as we will see today, thought that by ceremoniously washing his hands of the issue, he could have his cake and eat it too. He could kill Jesus and blame the Jews for it. And by so doing, he outed himself as yet another sinner on this growing list of sinners who put the Son of God on the cross. He may have been innocent by his own estimation, innocent by most human estimations, but by God's standards, he is guilty. Though some brush off his sin as respectable, subtle, or unavoidable, here we have a man who gave the final go-ahead for the slaughter and murder of the Son of God. And what we've noticed as we've studied this individual pilot is that his positive feelings toward Jesus fall far short of genuine faith and genuine love. And this is such a wonderful lesson for us all, isn't it? It's not enough to simply affirm, to feel positively about Jesus, to feel warmly about Jesus. Backing away even more, it's not just the horrifying, vile sins that put Jesus on the cross, it's also the respectable sins. It's also the mild, unassuming sins, the sins that maybe people commit and then say, but I'm still innocent. And it was this very kind of sin that put Jesus in the end on the cross. Well, let's read this passage together again. This time we'll finish our study here of Pilate and move on to the next section. I'm going to do the same thing I've done the last three Sundays, and that is that I'll read the first couple of verses of Matthew 27, and uh, then we'll skip to verse 11 and go down to 26, which give us the whole story. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. 
When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Pilate said to, Pilate said, then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear the many things that they testify against you? He gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. He said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am Innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. My mother used to tell a story. In fact, I think even the last weeks of her life, she told the story of when I was just a little infant and uh, laying there in the little bouncy seat. This is the 1970s, so the bouncy seat was probably made of shards of glass or something. (laughs) And uh, my sister, who's just slightly older than me, was sitting next to me with some crayons And my mom stepped away for a moment and came back, and my sister had drawn with those crayons all over the wall. My mother said, Sarah, what have you done? Sarah looked at mom and looked at the wall and looked at mom and looked at the wall, and then she looked over at me and said, John did it. (laughs) We humans have a long, illustrious history of blaming one another, don't we? No one taught my sister how to blame me. No one taught Adam how to blame Eve. No one taught Eve how to blame the snake. No one taught either one of them how to blame God for their situation. We love blaming. And the reason we blame is to to mitigate, to, to lessen our sin in some way, to make it less repugnant, to make it less harmful, less bad, perhaps even less sinful, maybe even to get us off the hook altogether. We love to blame people. Now, I'm a big supporter of uh, what's called biblical counseling. It used to be called neuthetic counseling. At the same time, I'm not necessarily hateful to modern-day psychology or psychiatry. Uh, I would not say that integration is a good idea. Uh, however, I'm not necessarily hateful. Yet one of the ideas that I do loathe about a lot of what we see in modern psychiatry or modern psychology, the thing that's troubled me through the years is blaming. Freud 
Sigmund Freud, the founder of really what we know in terms of modern psychology, Freud had no concept of original sin, no concept of human depravity. And so when someone has a bad habit, when they have sin, when they're involved in something nasty or bad, what a lot of counselors, not all of them, but what a lot of modern psychiatrists and psychologists do is help that person dig through their history and find who they are to blame. It's not your fault that you're addicted. It's not your fault that you're sinning. It's certainly not because you are depraved and inherently sinful and need to be redeemed. It's, it's because someone did something to you, and you need to find that person and, and put the blame upon them. And make sure you place that blame on them because it's not your fault. Again, this is an effort to blame others. And so people do this. They take this advice. Maybe they gather this advice from a psychiatrist. Maybe they just gather it from the way the world thinks now. Again, a rejection of their inherent sin, a rejection of the fact that they are sinful. And so what do they do? They look around themselves. They convince themselves that they're better than they really are, and they begin to find blame that they can put on other people. They begin to manufacture in their heart and their mind sins that others maybe around them, maybe those closest to them have committed, and they turn and blame them. And they, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because then they interpret everything that person does on, based upon what the, the kind of blame that they want to heap on that person. And so they dig deeper and deeper, and they convince themselves nothing is really their fault. It's really someone else's fault. So their sin, their violation is excusable or at least less repugnant. Well, this is exactly what Pilate did. This is precisely what Pilate did. He saw the injustice of this all. He knew this would be morally wrong to kill Jesus. He knew it would be reprehensible to kill an innocent man, but he did it anyway. And he washed his hands blaming someone else. It's their fault. I'm not putting him to death. It's someone else's fault. I may give the command, but it's somebody else's fault. A few years after this, Pilate was removed from Palestine. He was sent to what we call modern-day France. It was Gaul back then. And there he committed suicide. He committed suicide for the same reason Jewish, Judas did, not because he was seeking some sort of self-esteem, but because he refused to accept the guilt and come to Christ. He constantly blamed. He knew he was guilty of killing the Son of God. Yet what we see in Judas and also his wife is something we relate to, a respectable sinner, a guy who admired Jesus, some, some sort of you know, uh, fascination with Jesus, at least in a rudimentary way, he appreciated Jesus, admired Jesus. We also have in Judas a guy who never repented, who never trusted, who never really followed Jesus. And so he's yet another one of the sinners it took to nail Jesus on the cross. Well, in looking at this, we've identified several deficiencies, why his positive feelings toward Jesus, his positive feelings toward the Son of God fell short in terms of a saving sense. What are those feelings? We've identified several so far. Number one, we noticed admiration without love. Pilate admired Jesus, but he did not love Jesus. 
That's in verse 14. Matthew reports that Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. He was amazed. He was shocked at Jesus. Kind of reminds me of the crowd when they would hear Jesus preach and they, they were amazed at the authority with which Jesus spoke. I mean, there was great respect. There was admiration. Matthew gave us a summary. We looked at the fuller story in John 18. There's this back and forth. Pilate sort of went through this initial trial, this initial sort of political trial with Jesus, legal trial with Jesus, and then realized that Herod was nearby. He sent him to Herod. Herod tried him and then sent him back to Pilate. There Pilate asked about Jesus' identity. Were those accusations true, these these religious leaders are bringing all these accusations. Are these accusations true? Of course, they were not true. Jesus was not, not an insurrectionist. He encouraged people to pay their taxes, and he was a king, but he wasn't a king that would challenge him in any kind of political or military way. He was a king of a spiritual kingdom. He was not there to attack Pilate or attack the Roman government. He was there to set up something spiritual. So Jesus, to Pilate, was a fascinating character. It's likely Pilate knew of Jesus' popularity. He heard of Jesus' miracles. It wasn't very far from there, probably when Pilate was even governing that area, that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And we know that that word had gotten out. People knew Jesus of this, and that whole region had heard about this man coming out of the grave after three days. Clearly, Jesus is not a threat to anyone except wicked people. They were jealous of his power, jealous of his popularity, jealous of his ability to preach. This carpenter from rural Galilee had such amazing power. What kind of man could arouse such devotion, such love, such a following that everyone in power hated him? And so Pilate saw all this. He understood all this, and he was amazed and admired Jesus. But amazement and admiration cannot be confused with love, right? People the world over have respect for Jesus. People the world over admire Jesus, affirm Jesus, respect His teaching, His morals, His activity, maybe even have a, a respect for Christianity, for those who follow Jesus. Some even go so far as to say He was a spiritual man. He, he actually was a miracle worker, had some kind of divine power. Many folks have this admiration and respect for Jesus. They're greatly amazed, like Pilate, but also like Pilate, they don't have any love, true love for Jesus. Well, that brings us to point two. We noticed Pilate had comprehension without relationship. Verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ, for he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Pilate had the facts. He comprehended what was going on. He, he knew. Pilate was not deceived by these religious leaders. He was not fooled by the people. He knew who Jesus was. In fact, he called him Christ, the anointed one. The comprehension is far below genuine relationship. Notice he said Jesus is simply called the Christ. Not my Christ, not my Messiah, not the Savior. Just a title for him. 
What else is an indicator? Uh, false innocence, innocence before man, but guilty before God. Number three, we looked at this in depth last week, intuition without truth. Verse 19, this very interesting side story, only Matthew accounts. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate's wife, later known as Procula, had some sort of dreams. No indication that this was a revelatory dream. No indication that this dream was God giving her a secret, giving him special, a special message. It was just a dream. She had some kind of nightmare about harming Jesus. And, of course, if it's like any other dream, it was just a product of what was in her mind, what was going on around her. She knew about Jesus, and she had an intuition. She had a gut feeling. It would be wrong for this righteous man to die. And this is down deep in her conscience. This is in her mind. And so she dreamt about it and then sent a message to her husband, don't have anything to do with this Jesus. And... The idea is that Pilate himself had that same sort of gut feeling, that same intuition that Jesus was in, innocent, that he was guiltless, that he was good, that he was righteous. But as we noted last week, positive vibes about Jesus do not a Christian make. We live in a place in an age where people think that thinking positively of Jesus, affirming Jesus, feeling warmly about Christianity or churches or whatever, somehow that makes a person a Christian. Not so. There's no truth. There's no doctrine. There's no story of redemption. There's no atonement. You must understand and believe and submit to these things in order to follow Jesus. All right, let's keep moving through this passage here. Verse 20, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. So here's this crowd. Screaming for the death of Jesus. Verse 22, Pilate said to them, What shall I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And Pilate says something pretty amazing for an unbeliever. Verse 23, he said, Why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So listen very carefully. From Pilate's own lips, he honored Christ. This man is not evil. This man is holy. This man is good. This man is righteous. My wife and I both, we feel the same way. How in the world could you want the death of a man who's committed no wrong, who is blameless? He's not evil. I found nothing but good in this man. And that brings us to number four, veneration without worship. Veneration without worship. Is it possible to venerate someone or something without worshiping him? Of course it is. The word venerate comes from the Latin veneratus, and originally it was tied to pagan worship, the worship of the false gods. The idea is that you pay homage, you venerate this god by doing something, by paying something, and, and by doing so you, you win the favor of that particular god. Well, as time went on, the English language in particular, that, that word venerate broadens beyond pagan worship, and now venerate simply means to regard someone with reverential respect or deference. Religiously, it means to 
honor with an act of devotion. But I still think there's that lingering idea, you do it to get something from them, to get some sort of blessing. Years ago, when I was a pretty new young pastor, my wife and I lived in a tiny little duplex behind the church, and uh, we had a driveway in the front. That's how the, these duplexes, this little neighborhood had these duplexes with these little driveways in the front, and everyone parked on the street, and uh, my car was out there parked in the street. I was out in the front lawn doing something, mowing. I don't know what I was doing, but I was out in the front lawn, and I uh, heard a fight going on in the, the house across the street. And, a guy storms out of the house, he hops in his truck, he backs down his driveway, hits my car, peeling out, he takes off. So I walk up to the house and I knock on the door and they're kind of troubled, there are people are in there and they're kind of in the middle of this fight and drama and I said, hey, that dude just left, he hit my car and they're kind of like, it's not us, you know, don't, don't talk to us about it. So I called the police and the police came over and they began to look at my car and ask me questions and I'm giving them this report. And about that time, the guy comes back in his truck and he pulls up into his driveway. And I tell the policeman, that's him. You see the red mark on his bumper? That's my paint. And so the policeman calls the guy over and... Uh, asked him, hey, you, you know, this guy saw you run into his car, and the guy just immediately, with a whole lot of expletives, begins to say, I'm lying, I made it up, that red is from some other car, that, that he's seen my car out there with a dent in it, he's, I'm just trying to cheat him and get money, and, and it's sort of a he said, he said situation, the police doesn't know really who to believe, and I said, um, well, I'm the pastor of this church right here, and I have no reason to, to just make this up. And the guy, the truck, the driver of the truck said to me, or said all of a sudden, he says, oh, you're, you're a pastor? I said, yeah. He said, I admit, I did it. <laughs> Something tells me this is not true worship. He venerated me just to make sure he had his bases covered. I found this to be true in Hawaii, very true of being a pastor in Hawaii, now 13 years almost, and, and people just talk to you and they're like, oh, pastor, wow, don't want to touch, you know, say nice things around the pastor. A friend and I were driving down the road one day, and uh, I wasn't driving, my friend was driving, he was speeding, got pulled over, and if I were pulled over, the last thing I would do is to tell him I'm a pastor, I don't want to, you know, sully the name of God or my church. That was the first thing my friend said, I'm a pastor. And he's a pastor, too. And the police officer said, well, I guess I can't give a ticket to a pastor. You guys slow down. I've discovered this being a Navy chaplain as well. People will just uh, be talking to you, and there's just all kinds of expletives and all kinds of stuff, and then they see that little cross and say, oh, chaps, I'm sorry. Oh, chaps, I'm sorry. Sorry, I didn't say that. As though, you know, I'm injured or hurt by, you know, I'm so tender that I can't hear a curse word. But again, there's veneration, but not worship. And that veneration, I think, comes out ultimately of a, of a selfish desire. I just want to cover my bases. I don't want to get in bad with whatever God this guy serves. I, I don't want to get in bad with him just in case I need to cover my bases. Pilate, in the end, was all about himself. He was justifying himself. He was trying to prove himself innocent. 
This veneration of Jesus, this declaring of Jesus as being holy and righteous and not evil and good, this, this effort to honor Jesus, to venerate Jesus before the crowd was ultimately an act of selfishness. He, he just wanted to save his own skin. Well, he knew this to be true, and like I said, in the end, it took him to the grave. This man was venerating Jesus, but not worshiping him. All right, number five, and then I'm going to give you some application, and we'll be finished this morning. Look there at verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Number five, assertion without evidence. This man had confidence that he was innocent. He felt because he venerated Jesus or had good positive vibes toward Jesus or understood Jesus was holy or admired Jesus, he, he felt because of that he could assert, I am innocent. I am innocent to claim that he was innocent. He claimed he was innocent, by the way, moments before he commanded his soldiers to scourge Jesus. He was all too happy to let the Jews take the blame for what was about to happen, but he was the one who made it happen. I suspect what was happening in his mind was some, some calculation, some math. He was just doing the math. You know, if, if Caesar asked me, I was putting down an insurrectionist. If he says that man was not an insurrectionist, I'll, I'll be very quick to say, hey, but it's not me. It was the Jews who wanted him dead. I mean, I gave the order, but I washed my hands. I'm innocent. This was his self-preserving scheme. He washed his hands, declared himself innocent, and then he sent Jesus to be scourged. The people crying out, His blood be on us and our children, probably made Pilate feel even more innocent. This is not me. This is their doing. Pilate sent him out for scourging. Now, Matthew simply says, he scourged Jesus. Was this an act of mercy? Was this an act of moderation? Does Pilate scourging Jesus somehow prove Pilate's innocence? Not at all. Puts Pilate right alongside all the crowd, the religious leaders, even Judas himself. What is scourging? What did Pilate do to Jesus? Scourging was yet another form of brutal torture that the Romans had perfected. Sometimes we forget that before Jesus went to the cross, He was tortured. The soldiers led Him down an area of Pilate's palace below the Gabbatha where they would torture criminals. Not only would the soldiers torture criminals there, they would play games. Some of you have even been there and you go down there to the, the Gabbatha and you see etched on the stone tiles there essentially board games that they would play 
perhaps betting how quickly it would take to kill them or to hurt them or to get them to say certain things. This is what it was all about, inflicting pain, getting this person to be in a state, a mental state of torture and death. This is, of course, all according to God's foreknowledge and plan. We see this in Psalm 22, the very idea of them playing games for His robe. So they took him down, and likely what they did is they tied his wrists together and then strung him up on a pole, stretching his body out to where his toes would just barely touch the floor, remove his clothes, and the soldiers would take their scourges. A scourge would have been a a wooden handle about 18 inches long, on the end of which were several leather straps. On the end of each one of those straps would be tied all kinds of sharp things like metal and glass and sharp stones. They hurled these at Jesus. The sharp ends planted themselves into the flesh of Jesus. Then they turned their backs on Jesus and pulled with all their might so as to tear the flesh off of Him. Words of scourging that we have we can see that much of the flesh of the victim was taken off of the body, revealing a bloody pulp, even organs exposed, sometimes falling out. And thanks to Pilate, it's only going to get worse from this point. My point is not to be grotesque, but to show you clearly what Pilate had ordered. To say, I'm innocent, I'm under duress, I'm not doing this. I admire Jesus, I I find no fault in Him. He's a good person whom I'm amazed about. And to turn right around and have this done to Him, Pilate just joined the rest of the wicked people who put Jesus on the cross and killed Him that day. Well, let me offer some application, and then we'll be finished. The primary and clearest application is for those of you who respect Jesus, admire Jesus, somehow have some sort of admiration of Jesus, affinity towards Jesus or the Bible or church. Do not assume that you are innocent. You need someone else's innocence to cover you. None of us are innocent. No human is innocent. And you can't go up to God and say, well, you know, I'm sort of, only sort of innocent. No, we're all guilty. So you go to God first, understanding that you are guilty. You are guilty. You're right in the crowd. Even if you're like Pilate and you have some sort of affinity to Jesus and you may think of yourself as, well, I would never cry out, crucify him. Well, that just puts you with Pilate who also was guilty that day. And so to be innocent before God, you must be clothed in someone else's innocence, namely Jesus Christ's innocence. One reason in the New Testament reading for today, I had him read 
from Romans 4 is because it teaches us that even Abraham, many years before Jesus, Abraham needed that innocence. He needed that righteousness to be credited to his account. How do we receive the innocence of Jesus? Well, we come to Jesus in faith. We admit our guilt. We admit that we too put Jesus on the cross. And we trust in Jesus that his death paid the penalty of our sin so that his righteousness and innocence could be covering us so that we can be justified. Now, believe in him. Believe he's the only righteous one. Another application for those of us who have done that and trusted in Christ and followed after him and believe these things. You believe he's the only way. You believe he paid for your sin, that he provided his innocence, his righteousness for you. You're on the path of holiness. You're trying to be like Christ. And one thing that can help you in those efforts is to remember that all of your sin, even your respectable sins, put Jesus on the cross. Every sin, not just the bad ones, the big ones, the obvious ones, not just the ones you committed before salvation, all of them. Yes, there are sins that are greater violation and lesser violation, heavier and lighter, but every single sin of yours was an affront to God, it was cosmic treason, and it was laid on Jesus in the crucifixion. Look at Pilate, his respectable sins. They think he's off the hook, not guilty, but he's just as culpable as anybody that day. And even your small sins are included. As a believer, your objective is not just to flee the ugly or the bad sins. It's also to flee the little sins, the small sins, the respectable sins. It is to be holy as he is holy. Let's make that our objective. Let's not shoot for the bare minimum. Final application as we sort of back out and look at all of this from a broad perspective. Just notice the darkness and sin all around. Judas is sinning. Pilate is sinning. Herod is sinning. The soldiers are sinning. The crowd is sinning. The religious leaders are sinning. Even Jesus' disciples are sinning. The soldiers are sinning. Jesus is the only one who's innocent and perfect. Yet he's the one who's being killed by these sinners. May our hearts fill up with thankfulness to him who bore our cross. Let's pray. We are indeed thankful, dear God, for your son, Jesus Christ, who paid so great a price, not for his sins, but for ours. And so we worship you. We worship your son, Christ. We worship you for the work of the Spirit in our lives. We want to bring you glory. Help us, Lord, as we contemplate this individual pilot. Help us to remember the sinfulness of sin. Help us to remember that our sin is what put Jesus on the cross. That we too are guilty. 
Lord, we pray that you would cause those who don't know you to admit that guilt to you even now. Give them the desire to extend their faith in Jesus Christ who washes them with His blood, making them as white as snow. All of us, Lord, may we take our sin seriously. May we see our sin as an affront to You and Your holiness. May we ever seek to pursue You, to flee our sin, even the ones that seem minor or respectable or subtle. Help us to love You with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand with me, if you will. Read a benediction. Now may we go trusting in Jesus Christ that His perfection has been applied to us by the faith that He has provided in our hearts by the Spirit. And may we continue in that faith, encouraging one another in good works. Amen.